0: Often, uh, when we get together on these Monday nights, you might notice a a common thing that we speak about together is this practice of meditation and a particular flavor of meditation, this flavor of uh, sitting down to bring our awareness, um, to to have a stability of mind so we can uh, see clearly, see in a different way uh, the way things are. And in many ways, it's quite simple, right? We're just noticing what arises. We notice the feeling of the breath. We notice how a thought arises and passes away when emotion arises and passes away. A sensation comes and goes, a sound or a sight. And it's just this bare noticing Mm -hmm. with this quality of acceptance. And through that, what you might, and I'm sure many of you who have been meditating have noticed this, is that through that, there's a, a, a different way of being in the world that begins to emerge. And I feel that's the, the promise and the gift that comes from doing this practice in a repetitive way. is a, a radical, radically different way of being. But what we discuss here Monday nights is not only that. We're here to come together to really explore together not only meditation but a spiritual path. And to explore it in a way that it's more of a discussion and an exploration rather than some kind of dogma. You know, This is not about I sit up here and I say things and you must believe. <laughs> it's about me offering you some reflections and then we open up a, a space to discuss and to see where all of us stand with this. And what makes community is uh, diversity, and, and often that's also with diverse views. So please remember, even when I'm speaking tonight... These are reflections really to as the seed, the beginning of an exploration, a discussion, in, in uh, couched in uh, or enfolded in, in, folded in a, a, a broader spiritual path that includes meditation but is broader than that. How is it broader than, than meditation? That what we're doing here is not only finding a different way of being in the world, but it, but responding to it and to me this is what's so important is how can I respond differently to the world that I live in and not just to skillfully respond to my life but to, to respond to this troubled world that, that all of us find ourselves thrown into how do you respond to the world out there in a skillful way and what we're exploring is really a path that, that allows us to step out of what I'd call a self-centric view of the world into a broader sense. And this is what I'm going to come back to uh, again and again is, is stepping out of a self-centric uh, uh, view of the world. Because th- what the Buddha taught a lot is, is how our minds are trapped into such a small, confining world, this self-centric view. And this confinement not only happens in the world out there, the way we approach our lives, but sometimes it, we can still bring it into a spiritual path. And I want to share with you a, a passage from a Theravada monk by the name of Bhikkhu Bodhi. and He's, he's talking to the, uh, a Buddhist community in the West, but I, but I feel that it, it can have broader implications. He says, "...seeing the immensity of the world's anguish has raised in my mind questions about the future prospects for Buddhism in the West." I've been struck by how seldom the theme of global suffering, the palpable suffering of real human beings, is thematically explored in the Buddhist journals and teachings with which I'm acquainted. It seems to me that we Western Buddhists tend to dwell in a cognitive space that defines the first noble truth. The first noble truth is just the truth that there is suffering. It doesn't deny that there's happiness in the world, but who who here has not suffered? Voila, here's the first noble truth, right? <laughs> this is what it is to live. So again, it seems to me that we Western Buddhists tend to dwell in a cognitive space that the divines defines the first noble truth largely against the background of our middle-class lifestyles. As the gnawing of discontent, the ennui, the boredom of over-satiation, the pain of unfulfilling relationships... Too often, I feel, our focus on these aspects of suffering or dukkha has made us oblivious to the vast, catastrophic suffering that daily overwhelms three-quarters of the world's population. What is he saying here? He's saying that we can have a spiritual path or we can have a life that is so self-centric that we forget about the world that we're living in and the suffering that's out there. And that a uh, uh, authentic spiritual path is one that is responding to the world that we're living in one that, that addresses what he calls this, this global suffering and this is the question I want to explore y- with you tonight is how do you how do you and it's going to be t- different for each one of you here how do you um, Discover and explore and, and find a skillful response to this troubled world what is that response going to look like and again it's going to be different for different people but the question I, th- I feel is very important if you're interested in, in a spiritual path if you're interested in a different way of being in the world And and what's the flavor of the wisdom that arises from this practice that can inform uh, a a skillful response or inform what your response might be individually? And I want to situate this in a particular flavor of global suffering that, that all of us are faced with, namely climate change. And... To be very specific, right, the climate change is this dynamic. It's the fact that the Earth's average temperature over a long period of time now is has been rising and it's predicted that it will continue to rise. And as a, r- a result of that, we are seeing and we will see changes in weather and in climate, flooding, drought, acidification of, uh, and warming of the oceans, ice caps melting, and as this continues, year after year, there's going to be huge challenges, right? Huge challenges for, for the society that you find yourself in, and especially the environment. And as has been shown again and again, it's been shown that a large part of this is due to um, human activity, right? And very specific, namely the releasing of greenhouse gases, the number one culprit being um, uh, carbon dioxide, Um, but other ones like methane and and nitrous oxide. But it's really the carbon emissions that that, uh, seems to be the main culprit. How to respond to that? And I want to name something about this problem in particular it can feel so huge and so vast and so difficult to even understand or get a sense of because it's on a much bigger scale it's not something that just happens day after day it's happening over these long periods of time and in some ways kind of gradually in a way that we can't see it's not like there's um, a a mountain lion outside and there's the threat so i Mm want to name the, the the challenge of this for our our human brains And yet, how do you respond? What is the skillful response? How does meditation, based on seeing clearly, how can it inform this? I want to mention one quality or one kind of seeing clearly that can arise through the spiritual path, in part through meditation which I feel is very important at least it's been very important for me to get more of a sense of how to respond and, and what my role is or getting a, a, a sense of, of my relationship to it and I want to share with you a, a, a short passage from uh, a short story by Alison Luterman uh, entitled What We Came For and it's just one of the characters, one of the characters says this. She says, "Strawberries were too de- delicate to be picked by machine. The perfectly ripe ones bruised at even too heavy a human touch." It hit her that ev- that it hit her then that every strawberry she had ever eaten, every piece of fruit, had been picked by calloused human hands every piece of, piece of toast with jelly represented someone's knees someone's aching back and hips someone with a bandana on her wrist to wipe away the sweat why had no one told her about this before what is she seeing in the strawberry do you hear what, what she's beginning to see how it's interdependent, how it's interconnected with all these other things, in particular with with the people picking the strawberries, the calloused hands and the knees, someone's aching back and hips. Not only that, but if we were to continue, the truck driver, the people on the oil rig, pumping the oil, right. the commodity broker. All of these people, the pe- person at the fruit stand, it's this recognition that, that everything is interdependent, everything is interconnected in this way. We're all interwoven together. The image that comes from uh, uh, later on in Buddhism uh, called Indra's net gives a, a, a beautiful image of this, which is it's to imagine there's this, this net that, that expands out infinitely in all directions. And if you were to look at the node, of, of, of at, one at the net, the juncture there, you would see this um, jewel. And if you were to look into this jewel, you would see reflected in it all the other jewels, at all the other nodes. So in one jewel is in, in, in encapsulated all the other jewels that expand out infinitely, this interdependent quality. Thich Nhat Hanh n- calls it interbeing which is a different view, right? A lot of times you might notice when you walk around the world, what's the feeling sense of walking in the world? Here I am, and I'm walking through the world. I'm here, and the world's out there. (coughs) And then it's like I am this person, this separate entity that kind of bumps into different people or bumps into things or situations. But it's actually not the case. We interdependently arise together. The only reason I'm here is because of relationships, relationships with gravity and water and air and the earth and the sun. If those aren't there, I'm not here. So who I am in some ways is not really this separate entity. It's all interconnected. And this is what we want to understand on deeper and deeper levels. The Buddha has so many teachings about getting this. Why is this? It's because when I get a feeling sense of it, not just an idea, but if I can get a way of being that arises from that, that's a way of stepping out of this self-centric view of the world. Do you hear this? Right. I, I, it's no longer about me looking at the world. It's a different sense of how, how experience unfolds. Very important. How things are intertwined. stepping out of a self-centric world into an interdependent world. I'd like to share with you a story that the Buddha told. So this is, I want to point out, this is a story that he told 2,600 years ago. It's a story from a different time, a very different time, a very different culture, a very different worldview. And the reason I want to share it with you is because telling it now at this time and in this context of what's going on right now, I think has uh, it gains a new meaning to it, a poetic meaning, which I think is interesting. So I just want to share with this with you. So I invite you to, to, to kind of uh, to reflect on this in terms of kind of the culture that it came from, but also kind of maybe the the poetic impact that it has about what's going on right now. The Buddha begins, he says, Bhikkhus, and Bhikkhu is a a monastic. Bhikkhus, when kings are unskillful, the royal vassals become unskillful. When the royal vassals are unskillful, Brahmins and householders become unskillful. When Brahmins and householders are unskillful, the people of the towns and countryside become unskillful. When the people of the towns and the countryside are unskillful, the sun and moon proceed off course. When the sun and moon proceed off course, the constellations and the stars proceed off course. When the constellations and the stars proceed off course, day and night proceed off course. The months and fortnights proceed off course. The seasons and years proceed off course. When the seasons and years proceed off course, the winds blow off course and at random. When the winds blow off course and at random, the deities become upset. When the deities are upset, sufficient rain does not fall. When sufficient rain does not fall... The crops ripen irregularly. When people eat crops that ripen irregularly, they become short lived, weak, and sickly. And then he goes through the same thing when when kings are skillful, when vassals are skillful, where the people of the countryside are skillful, things are on course, things are in harmony. The crops grow regularly, and people are beautiful, healthy, and strong. I find it a striking story for our times. Truth to it, don't you think? When I act unskillfully, especially now, I mean, in some ways, what what I learn or what we can learn from climate change is, when I act unskillfully in my life, it has ramifications for this, this, this world. And it can make the crops grow irregularly. It can make people sick in all kinds of ways. This is what comes with an understanding of interdependence. This is what comes when we start to leave a self-centric view of the world and enter into an interdependent view of the world. So again, ha- how to how to respond and how to do this skillfully? And, and I want to point out: so often, what happens around tragedies like this is that the discourse uh, starts to become a discourse of us and them especially around this have you noticed this something that could be a scientific discussion which a lot of times scientific uh, findings are their their discussions has now become a political debate what a tragedy and it's a political debate in order to divide the lines around us and them And I want to point out, there, is, there are times to have a sense of us in them, but I think in, in that sense it's, it's, it's very damaging. You could say it's a kind of self-centric world, not understanding an interdependent world. Again, I want to come back to this idea that when we sit, we're we're gaining some tools that can be helpful in figuring out what the right response is. (coughs) What happens when I sit? Here I am, I, I sit down, I start to feel the feeling of my breathing, the rising and falling of the abdomen. A sound arises, it passes away, a thought comes up, oh, judging, oh, worrying, oh, planning. Oh, and then I notice that and I come back to the feeling of the breathing. An emotion arises. Oh, anxiousness. This is what anxious feels like in the body. I'm beginning to get a, a sense of the landscape of my internal world in a way that I begin to know it and see it rather than blindly react to it. What, what makes me create this sense of us and them or unskillful responses is the reactivity. I'm rea- reacting to the things that are being, being kind of triggered within my own body-mind. What a cool thing to have a different relationship. The the different relationship being simply witnessing it, noticing it, and having acceptance with it, and then allowing a skillful response to to arise. It offers a space for something new to arise. That's the ground within which we want a response to Mm -hmm. arise. Practically speaking, I do want to name some things in terms of response. As I said before, I, I do want to emphasize that the way you respond to the world is going to be unique to you, and I think that's important to remember, especially around climate change. There is a place, I think, for social activism. I don't think there's a place to be pressured into social activism, though. I think it really needs to come from your heart. And there are other responses that are that the, the really can be around this this um, this issue that really fit in with a spiritual path. It can be just on the individual level in terms of our actions that we do throughout the day and and the the carbon footprint that comes from that. The smallest things can make a big difference. So there's. Um, a, a Vanderbilt University, uh, from the so from their School of Law, they've done some really interesting um, statistical studies around if um, just what they call uh, picking off the low hanging fruit. So, if if everyone were to um, turn off their car rather than allow it to idle, so they say not to allow your car to idle idle more than five or ten seconds. So, if you're like at a, a stoplight, in terms of um, the impact it would have over the years in terms of a carbon footprint as a country is huge. Unplugging big TVs when they're off, because a lot of times they're on standby, cuts down. Five five to seven percent of of the the electricity used in a a household is by um, uh, electronic devices on standby. And again, if you have millions of people doing this, it makes a difference. Lifestyle makes a difference. There's, There's been an argument that it doesn't make a difference. It's actually not true there's an impact when we, we change our lifestyles and again if you're interested in this research I could I could show you these, these research articles it could be educating others about this it could be um, acts of activism and I, I think I think a, a thing that I remind myself of, with these kinds of issues, is a, is a quote by uh, Howard Thurman. If you know Howard Thurman, he was the um, he was the first person to first um, pastor to open up a church church that was uh, racially integrated in 1944 in San Francisco, and he actually was the um, spiritual advisor to Martin Luther King. And he said, "Don't ask what the world needs." Ask what makes you come alive, and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. <coughs> so during the, the discussion after the sit, th- this is something that we maybe could explore together, discuss if, y- if you want to stay, of course. Um, See if it fits in your schedule or not. Uh, And I also want to bring in another piece just in terms of the activism side, because I think this is what I find happens a lot in meditation groups, um, is that we talk a lot about what we can do inwardly, and we don't talk about what could be done outwardly. For example, I was... uh, I was having a conversation with a Vipassana teacher who is very well known. I don't want to name their, their view, but there was this push to get all the Vipassana teachers in America to sign this letter about how um, they wanted to do something about uh, climate change. And he said, I'm not going to sign a letter and then sit around and talk about meditation with a bunch of people. Let's do something. So for some people, I think it's important to have that quality too. And actually... Um, my neighbor, Sean Newell, um, I just want to share with you something very practical, or maybe you could just share share a little bit about um, this um, Citizens' Climate Lobby that you're going to be talking about on Thursday as well at the library. Yeah.
1: Um, I have felt like what to do, and have been, I've been working personally and like that I was looking around for some policy approach, to climate change, and I was invited to this call um, or actually I saw it in Yes Magazine, I love that magazine. So I saw this thing about Citizens Climate Lobby, and they have every week on Wednesday, and I left some information on on the table there for anybody who's interested. Every week on Wednesday, they spend an hour with a real person talking to anybody who calls in about what they do. And within that hour, I was totally convinced that this is something that makes me come alive that I really need to do. And that we didn't have a group in Flagstaff, there are groups all over the place. And what they do is nonpartisan, respectful, persistent lobbying. And what they have done is they have developed what they think is a cross, pretty mm-hmm. cross spectrum um, legislative, basically a proposal for legislation that appeals to the far right of far left and everybody in the middle and so that most of what they do is um, besides building awareness among real people they train real people ordinary citizens to be the spokesman for the world essentially going forth to policymakers and saying we want this thing to change here's a good way to do it um, what can we do to help you make these changes and, and so on and so forth so um, so I, I volunteered to um, host a, a startup workshop yeah. and a group here in Flagstaff, and the first meeting will be on uh, this Thursday from 6 to 8.45 at the Downtown Library. And two women from Citizens Climate Lobby are coming to share with all of us, because I don't really still know exactly how it all works, how their model works and invite um, people to join in. So they've, um, they've been... Really successful growing this group. They've been doubling every year. I think in the last eight years they've been in existence. And um, for me, it it's just seems like a very practical way to spend time to, to help bring other people along. So I Great. invite everyone here to participate if you want. And, um, Great, thank and you. Talk to me, uh, Thanks, Sean. Or, yeah, or sure. CCL, Citizens Climate Lobby, you can go online.
0: And again, this is something that. You know We can discuss, and I also want to point out, you know, everybody's response is unique. What we do is we come together to discuss what it is to respond and to discuss some tools that can help us respond. So I want to be clear that, w- that I think it's important to have these avenues, that there's real avenues out there, and um, we want to keep the discussion alive. What we'll do in a few minutes here is begin the sit, and again, just to frame it, um, what we're doing is just seeing if we can bring a quality of responsivity into our lives rather than reactivity. And what can help, again, is cultivating this quality of witnessing your experience, just as I was going over. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please
1: visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.